The Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast is sponsored by U.S. Bank. Embracing what makes us unique creates more possibilities for all. Learn more at usbank.com diversity. U.S. Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. We get to engage people, advance ideas, and ignite change because of the generous support from our community. If you find our resources meaningful or valuable, please consider supporting the forum today. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash donate. Thank you very much for your support and generosity. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for tuning in for today's podcast, Politically Incorrect Survival Lessons for the 21st Century, with Dr. Christine F. Hoover of Gonzaga University. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. This podcast addresses the gap in knowledge of four well-intended people who may struggle with language and skills to do the work and to engage in dialogue with diverse others. Participants will be invited to reflect on topics including othering through dialogic organization and development processes. There is no quick fix for people to become skilled in complexities of DEI work, and the content of this session will address feelings of uncertainty and readiness for social change as productive processes to face forward. This podcast will help you develop fluency with contemporary DEI vocabulary, including othering, allyship, and racial equity. It'll help you reflect on your own level of readiness for change in racial equity work and develop skills for inviting conversations for racial healing. Dr. Christine F. Hoover is an associate professor in Master of Arts in Organizational Leadership Program, facilitating the change leadership concentration and is director for the Institute of Hate Studies at Gonzaga University. The Institute of Hate Studies bridges the academy with community engagement through research, teaching, and partnerships with students, faculty, and community members. Dr. Hoover is concerned with questions regarding how organizations and communities shape inclusion and cultures of dignity. Her most recent publication is Countering Hate, Cases of Change. She is a former chair of the Washington Legislative Ethics Board and former SHRM trainer. It's a real pleasure to be here and to be a part of these podcasts, especially when it is all too apparent that our world is in the midst of immense disruption from the global pandemic of COVID-19 and our country is in the midst of a long overdue reckoning with white supremacy. These podcasts matter as we literally feel these stresses in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, and the struggles created by the tremendous volatility and uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. The average temperature of the earth is rising. Artificial intelligence is changing industries and job options. People around the world are seeking refuge from inhumane living conditions. Indigenous women are missing and murdered. And the list of black people, including Trayvon Martin, and Ahmaud Aubrey, who are losing their lives because of racism, is growing. What we need to survive these times and the 21st century are people, 
the best resource of innovation for new and creative solutions that are required to address the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity of our current context. We need people and people need to thrive and feel a sense of belonging. Beyond the moral question of how we engage with others, people who are not fully respected face barriers that negatively impact their ability to engage in problem solving and innovation. If we are at all concerned with the greater good of humanity and optimal effectiveness in our organizations, we must also be concerned with the flourishing of all. Leaders set the tone in communities and organizations for what is right or wrong, and leaders define who and what are respected or disrespected. The extent to which civility, collaboration, and open communication are cultural norms is in large part established by leadership. With the passing of John Lewis, former US representative and civil rights leader, we lost an inspirational role model. A man who worked from a place of empathy and love, courage and deep commitment to a higher moral standard. His example is daunting and it is a call for us to take hold of our better selves and provide leadership in our own communities too. We may not feel we are anywhere near the giant John Lewis was. However, we are human beings who can make a difference in how we survive and maybe even thrive. As John Lewis said, nothing can stop the power of a committed and determined people to make a difference in our society. Why? Because human beings are the most dynamic link to the divine on this planet. The very real needs for leadership that enacts activism, advocacy, and allyship to create more just societies can be traced to the presence of bigotry and discrimination, either through deliberate or unintentional means that animate the power differentials between us and them. We must develop common language that animates our work for racial equity and racial healing becoming fluent with these and other concepts to help us make progress towards these realities. Right now, and for much of our past, we get in the way of racial justice because our communities are broken and in need of healing. Our systems are broken in large part because of white supremacy and white supremacists. And these are the systems that fueled Charlottesville, Charleston, and a litany of other white supremacist attacks. With the significant work that's needed to create equity in our education, housing, and economic systems, we cannot lose track of the recent rise of hate in America that is undeniable, but not a new phenomenon. What we're seeing amidst the chaos and the exhaustion is also a resurgence of hate, of exclusionary and harmful beliefs and actions that view certain human beings as unworthy of human dignity and respect. By hate, we mean the human capacity to define and then dehumanize or demonize another. When we see others as less than ourselves, or when we see ourselves as inherently better than others, if we lack empathy for other human beings or do not treat people as we ourselves would want to be treated, that is dehumanizing or demonizing another. Hate includes all forms of bias and bigotry, including but not limited to ableism, ageism, anti-Semitism, classism, heterosexism, homelessness, Islamophobia, misogyny, religious animus, sexism, and xenophobia. Fundamentally, hate is antithetical 
to our pledge of allegiance with liberty and justice for all. We know that we can do better. We can look to many examples of how communities have empowered themselves to take nonviolent stands against hate, demonstrating how to respond to white supremacy and white nationalism in locations across the country with nonviolent outcomes. While addressing root causes of inequity are critical, structural change takes time. And while structural interventions are in process to address white supremacy, individuals can also act now to address white supremacists. To survive and thrive in our organizations and as a society, we must abandon feelings of helplessness and stand for human rights. We can find inspiration from the work done in Selma, Montgomery, and Birmingham, Alabama, some of the landmark locations for civil rights work in the 1960s. These movements from the past and the movements of today occur because people were ready to do the work. People act in their communities because they have started the work internally within themselves first. And this is where true leadership comes from, not from a position on an organizational chart or an elected office. We can all demonstrate leadership, regardless of our roles and formal positions. Leadership comes from ordinary individuals who choose to do extraordinary things to change our world. The well-known quote from cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead reminds us that we should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. And indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Part of doing the work includes learning our broader and more inclusive histories. We have to learn about the jura segregation, segregation that for decades kept us from knowing and valuing one another because government laws and policies allowed or prevented us access to housing loans, education grants, and freedom to choose where to raise our families based on the color of our skin, along with the impact of decades of wealth accumulation and depletion that occurred because of those laws and the de facto segregation with the unscrupulous real estate agents, unethical mortgage lenders, and exclusionary covenants working outside the law that ensued. Our commitment to providing leadership is necessary to undo the long-term impacts of segregation, and we can study our past to further our readiness for the work that lies ahead. Let me share with you, as a case in point, the history of the people in Northern Idaho who have and continue to develop counter strategies in response to the Aryan nations and their splinter hate groups. The leadership of people known as the Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations takes the form of a community group that has persisted over 40 years in doing this work without formal office space or staffing. Their work has taken place not only in their own local community, but across communities across the country from the state of Washington to Pennsylvania. The Aryan nations originated in the secluded wilderness of Hayden, Idaho during the 1970s and attracted righteous Western anti-government patriots who wanted to take back what they perceived to be their God-given white homeland and follow the teachings of Richard Butler and the Church of Jesus Christ Christian. The Aryan nations quoted scripture and the founding fathers documents connecting with the deeply held values of freedom from big government and sustainability, and stressing their commitment and concern for the working class man and his family. The Northwest Territorial Imperative, as it is known, was an unsuccessful effort to establish a whites-only homeland in Idaho, Oregon, Washington, Wyoming, and Montana. 
The sustainability of this work is due in part to the interior work done first by those taking up the mantle of leadership in their community. Founding member of the Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations, Tony Stewart, has said that his dedication to the work of the task force comes in part from when he was a young boy growing up in the South. One childhood incident in particular has stuck with him. While visiting relatives many decades ago, his family heard an African-American woman with a magnificent voice sing in church. His parents invited her to their own church, but when they told the church elders of the invitation, the elders rejected it. The church elders did not want an African-American to share their worship. Stewart considers this one of his foundational incidents that formed his perceptions about discrimination and racism. The resurgence of hate has been documented by hate crime reporting across the country. However, underreporting remains a problem. In 2013, the U.S. Department of Justice's Bureau of Justice Statistics estimated there were an average of 250,000 hate crimes annually based on their National Crime Victimization Survey, while the FBI reported that over 7,000 criminal incidents had occurred in their 2018 hate crimes report. While there are a number of reasons for these major inconsistencies, the underlying concern is the degree to which we as a society are committed to law and justice. When our principles of governing, such as equality, inalienable rights, and free speech are challenged, there are too many examples of protests and counter-protests that have become violent. These may be clashes over the rights of people of color, rights of people who worship Judaism, Islam, or other religions, people who come from other countries, people who are gay, or people who have a disability. While hate crimes defined by the FBI as harm to persons or property motivated in whole or in part by an offender's bias against race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, ethnicity, gender, or gender identity can be perpetuated by formally named groups and individuals, many times hate crimes are not lone wolf activities but are better understood as motivated by a leaderless resistance. The concept of a leaderless resistance is relevant to recognizing the significant role that hate groups play in hate crimes that may otherwise appear to be perpetuated by individuals. Although not the first to use the term, Louis Beam, a member of the KKK in the Aryan Nations, published a manifesto in the 1980s that called for leaderless resistance to the US government. He stated that only a very small or even one man cells of resistance could combat the most powerful government on earth. There's reason for this decentralized strategy. Organized white supremacist groups like the Order and Order II committed high profile crimes during the 1970s and 80s, and the FBI began tracking the groups as militants. The leaderless resistance lone wolf strategy skirts conspiracy statutes. This is to say that hate groups do explicitly support the actions of what may seem like individuals who are inspired by the hate group ideologies. White nationalists and white supremacy groups predicate their beliefs on the primacy of white Christian European descendants, generally dehumanizing or demonizing non-Christian people of color and or people who are gay. These groups have connections to earlier extremist movements, including the Ku Klux Klan and Christian identity. While initial efforts to explore the Klan's history were grounded in the South, Studies have expanded to include an understanding of white supremacy's context in all parts of the United States. 
Regardless of geographic location, these hate groups are pursuing a range of strategies from race wars to normalization. Groups such as Adam Waffen or Krieg Division clearly state their purpose is to prepare for a race war, while others wear ties and run for political office to disguise hatred as palatable and even righteous. When people are moved to counter hate, their actions can take many forms. These include direct confrontation by being in the physical presence of hate groups, bringing signs, chanting, and or engaging in harm to persons or property, whether planned or unplanned. Violence between Klan and counter protesters in an October 1997 rally in Asheville, North Carolina, is an example of how confrontation also created extra publicity or what might be considered free marketing for the hate group. About 30 Klan mem members of the Klan marched through the streets of Asheville, North Carolina, wearing white robes and carrying Confederate flags. They were met by 1,000 counter-protesters who shoved and threw epithets and rocks at the Klan members. After the media coverage of the event, the Klansmen then rescheduled another Asheville rally. And these encounters can magnify the publicity for hate groups, as well as raise concerns about extremism of counter-protesters. The Westboro Baptist Church strategically antagonizes their counter-protesters as a means to engage in lawsuits that have funded their enterprise. The very emotional nature of conflicting fundamental values can turn intentions of only being in the presence of those with whom there is essential disagreement into violent encounters, regardless of the intentions not to engage. There is plenty of evidence to show that violence by either protesters or counter-protesters is at best counterproductive and at worst deadly. Violence has too often occurred between protesters and counter-protesters when they co-mingle. The Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville in Virginia in 2017 is where a neo-Nazi killed Heather Heyer, a counter-protester, and injured 19 others. Direct confrontation resulted in violent outcomes and examples from the 1981 bloodshed between the Invisible Empire and counter-protesters in Connecticut and the 2017 Charles Murray speech at Middlebury College. Some community members would prefer a tactic of silence in the presence of hate groups because they're concerned that any counter initiative will damage the reputation of the community and have detrimental economic impacts. Other communities have, been, have identified a series of nonviolent strategies that allow people to act and to elevate their community's commitment to inclusion and diversity. The motto of the Bird Foundation for Racial Healing is Stop the Hate, Educate. The Bird Foundation provides training workshops, school visits, and community programs to combat the racism that led to the 1998 horrific lynching of James Byrd Jr. The Byrd's Foundation's efforts, along with others, encouraged President of Barack Obama to sign the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crime Prevention Act in 2009. Unlike so many tragic incidents of violence, our leadership can work for nonviolent strategies to successfully counter hate, and we need to learn more about root causes of how to dismantle hate, addressing individual issues of stereotypes and moral courage, in-group and out-group dynamics of exclusion and ostracism, and societal issues such as poverty and the wealth gap, acknowledging privileges that are experienced by some and not others. 
Healthy debates on the limits of free speech and hate speech need to be further explored. And the right to march also merits further attention. There is much work to be done. Marian Anderson, the celebrated African-American singer who fought on behalf of black artists to overcome racial prejudice has said that leadership should be born out of the understanding of the needs of those who would be affected by it. The community members who founded the Kootenai, Task, Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations in Northern Idaho were motivated by the needs of families and locally owned businesses attacked when a swastika was graffitied on a Jewish run restaurant and individuals experienced physical threats. While all this work needs to be done, it can seem overwhelming to people who want to do something but are not sure what they can do. Tony Stewart has said that the work of responding nonviolently to hate will never be done. The struggles between protesters and counter protesters, free speech and hate speech, and who is included and who is excluded from belonging or enduring. The efforts to define the culture and values of any community, be they exclusionary or inclusionary, manifest through rallies and celebrations, holding political office, dropping literature, and putting up stickers. When people are property or harmed, the question becomes how to take a stand and not be silenced in the face of these incidents and crimes. We can ask who was responsible for leadership? Is leadership the purview of all or the jurisdiction of a few? We suggest that anyone can provide leadership if they want to make a difference. Grandparents and neighbors, CEOs and frontline employees can be leaders when leadership is defined as taking action to create a more effective or optimal outcome. That outcome may be in listening to another, encouraging a colleague, changing how things are done, or standing up for a principle. In our commitment to leadership, we may find ourselves struggling with fear, anger, and or frustration in efforts both reactive and proactive, and we can find multiple paths to unite and not be defined by bias and bigotry. Anyone wanting to better understand a range of effective nonviolent community organizing actions to counter hate will find powerful inspiration to stand for the values of liberty and justice for all as ordinary people counter hate through vigilance and speaking out, uh, out against threats to human dignity. In learning our histories, we must also learn about specific nonviolent strategies, including gatherings for solidarity and lemons to lemonade counter initiatives. For the Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations, one of the most significant in initiatives was legal recourse through the court system. The Keenans versus Aryan Nation civil trial in 2000 resulted in a $6.3 million award against a white supremacist organization and the creation of a peace park on the grounds of their former compound. The peace park land was sold to a private owner in 2020 and the funds generated from the sale are committed to establishing an educational endowment as a means of sustaining human rights education. All across the country, we can learn from and adapt successful non-confrontational strategies, focusing energies on victim support, organizing counter events at alternative locations during hate group rallies and events, promoting state and federal human rights legislation, education and prison reform, and coordinating educational programs and community events to advance human rights. According to Tony Stewart, to carry out this work, we have determined never to remain silent. 
we can find no examples in history where silence has solved problems. Also, we will never engage in confrontation. We will follow the manner of Martin Luther King Jr. of doing something of our own elsewhere. We know that hate crimes occur when a crime such as murder, arson, or vandalism is motivated by bias and is formally defined as a criminal offense against a person or property motivated in whole or in part by the offender's bias against race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, ethnicity, gender, or gender identity. We can find the FBI hate crime statistics for our own communities documenting incidents and offenses, victims, offenders, types of locations, and jurisdictions. The information is made available through the Uniform Crime Reporting Program as reported by law enforcement agencies. According to the FBI, hate crimes are the highest priority of the FBI's civil rights program because of the devastating impact they have on families and communities. Although the FBI, along with local law enforcement, play a vital role in countering hate, ordinary people can take action too. Fundamentally, stopping hate crimes before they start is the best path for transformation and lasting change. Many organizations provide resources that both educate people about these harms and support preventative strategies. Of note, the Pyramid of Hate developed by the Anti-Defamation League, as well as Stanton's 10 Stages of Genocide bring to our attention the importance of addressing the attitudes and language in our communities that are the cornerstone of how cultures do or do not value the dignity inherent in all people. In the ADL's Pyramid of Hate, the underlying premise is that as one moves up from the bottom of the pyramid, bias attitudes and up to genocide, there is greater harm that is done to people and that higher levels in the pyramid exist because the lower levels provided the basis for their existence. The age old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, provides an interesting scaffolding for consideration. The adage assumes that insensitive remarks, non-inclusive language, and misinformation are only words, without acknowledging that these words will in some cases provide the bedrock for actions that grow out of these biases. Once communities allow negative stereotypes to normalize or flourish, it then makes bullying, epitests, and social avoidance more permissible. Attitudes, such as all members of a group are terrorists, when combined with the perceived ability to use insightful language and social norms that accept this lead to the intentions and actions that involve discrimination, vandalism, threats, and assault. In our communities, what is good or valued is in large part determined by the culture. What stories are told and retold, who is identified as a hero or a leader, what is celebrated, what is given resources of time or finances and space? Define what is rewarded and aspired to in any community. To what extent we can support existing opportunities or create new ones with local and regional human rights coalitions, alternative activities during hate events, and counter rallies at distant locations, either at the same time as hate events or time directly after a hate event, allow media to uncover the bias at the first event and immediately follow up with counter-narrative coverage. Examples of such things include 
free movies, bowling, skating, go-karting, music performances, singing, speeching, keynotes, and many other easy activities that we can engage with. But the fundamental lesson here is that engaging with hate groups directly is counter to the nonviolent strategies proven from past experiences. Supporting free speech of all while providing strength in numbers at counter rallies with a broad range of leadership creates momentum towards community values and has time and time again discouraged attitudes and norms that hatred in any manifestation is acceptable. It is an ongoing effort that requires vigilance, nurturing, and being proactive. Understanding the deeper issues of human rights and hate is always of the utmost importance in civil society. And in order to do this, we must all constantly work to refine our knowledge and experience with these issues. It's often difficult to engage with these topics, but there are many ways to get involved where dialogue may be moderated and cultivated. As you reflect on how you can take action to stand for human rights and take action against hate, consider the resources that I'm about to share with you as a starting point. Movements of hate are poignant, which is why anti-hate strategies must be well-developed to effectively counter dehumanizing aggressions effectively. Although hate crimes and bias incidents are heartbreaking, these resources stand as evidence that there are positive steps that can be taken to address, resolve, and heal from hate-filled experiences on individual and communal levels. Starting with caring for yourself, listening to learn from others, organizing, and engaging with additional materials for the long journey are things that we can each do now. Start by caring for yourself. If you're the victim of a hate crime, it's important to reach out beyond yourself to those who have resources and knowledge to help, to help you. Reach out to law enforcement and file a police report if you don't pursue a criminal investigation it is imperative to document the incident. Contact a civil rights organization for victim support and assistance. They may have a plethora of resources that can help you navigate through difficult times, including bias incident reporting processes. If you're white folk in the community, try to actively counter white fragility in order to not turn to defensive tactics when confronted and uncomfortable. Be malleable when called out and ask how racist narratives function. Consider taking the 50-question intercultural development inventory. It assesses the intercultural competence and can provide tools to better engage with cultural differences. Then, come together to listen for the purpose of learning. Host a civic dinner where food brings people together and an experience of community and culture. Celebrate being part of the human family by throwing a party or gathering as an important way to connect with your those in your community to establish strength and solidarity. If you're capable and feel strong doing so, engage compassionately and listen to those who hold positions that marginalize others. This does not mean go find your local Klansmen, but rather associate with your family members, friends, co-workers, or casual acquaintances who may promote disrespectful ideologies. Move beyond the cancel culture. And if you're aware that a hate group is coming to your community, plan meetings to discuss the group's history, intentions, and value sets so that the community is less fearful, more prepared, and resilient. Next, organize. 
The key to a resilient community is having a strong, welcoming infrastructure that can provide strength if a crisis were to ever occur. To ensure the support system is there before hate happens is of the utmost importance to provide care for those affected. Institutions should be preemptive in countering hate. This includes setting high standards for inclusivity by setting the expectations early and keeping the messages consistent. It's important to curtail bad behavior and it is equally important to incentivize and reward good behavior. Identify groups who would be energized to engage when hate rears its ugly head. Have just a few two or three core organizers who reach into their spheres of influence looking for 10 to 20 people who have concern or connection or involvement in the community. Try to establish a centralized and easily accessible meeting place. The meeting should follow the order of introductions, your pitch, your planning, and your closure. Work smarter, not harder, and use the wisdom and resources from others already established in local and regional resources like your human rights and civil rights organizations. It's important to have a system put in place if a crisis were, were to ever occur. A recommended set of steps is to put safety first, denounce the act, investigate, involve others when needed and applicable, and work with the media to provide accurate information, dispel misinformation, support the individuals who are targeted to seek justice, avoid blame, and promote healing and engage with additional resources for the long journey this work requires. Engage with government reports from the U.S. Justice Department's Bureau of Justice Statistics and National Crime Victimization Survey and the FBI Hate Crime Report. Engage with the national anti-hate groups such as the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Support research in higher education at the Bard Center for the Study of Hate, the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at the University of Ontario, the Center on Hate, Bias and Extremism at UC San Bernardino, and the Institute of Hate Studies at Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. Read from an expanded range of authors, including but not limited to Ibram X. Kendi, Iwo Jima Olu, Robin D'Angelo, Develop a deeper vocabulary and action list from the many materials at organizations such as Civic Dinners, Clamoring for Change, Not in Our Town, Racial Equity Tools, and the Western States Center. In closing, this talk on politically incorrect survival lessons for the 21st century comes full circle, connecting to the title of the, of the talk from the beginning. Political correctness is defined as the avoidance of forms of expression or action that are perceived to exclude, marginalize, or insult groups of people who are socially disadvantaged or discriminated against. To be politically incorrect is not avoiding these forms of expression against people who are discriminated against. Our acts of leadership require that we lean into these challenges as a part of our considerable, volatile, certain, complex, and ambiguous times. The question is how. We cannot avoid these questions as we work for a more just and equitable society. Survival lessons include creating strategies for belonging in contrast to the violence in society or discrimination in organizations 
that will create justice and tear down the walls of bias and prejudice based on group identities. The very real needs for leadership that enacts allyship, advocacy, and activism to create more just societies can be traced to the presence of bigotry and discrimination, either through deliberate or unintentional means that animate the power differentials between us and them. Start with your own inner work, basing your action on your own more inclusive understanding of the human's experience and history, and a deepened commitment to the greater good, integrating your soul with your roles in organizations and society. Listen to others with the purpose of learning to organize and connect with resources to sustain the long journey that lies ahead on the road to healing. The history of the people in Northern Idaho provide evidence of the tenacity and resiliency of a group of ordinary people that developed and continue to develop counter strategies in response to hate, <clears throat> preventing the establishment of the Northwest territorial imperative as a whites only homeland. And remember John Lewis and honor his legacy as an inspiration for us all to take up the mantle of leadership in our communities working from a place of courage and deep commitment to a higher moral standard he leaves us with many lessons in his words nothing can stop the power of a committed and determined people to make a difference in our society why because human beings are the most dynamic link to the divine on this planet thank you Thank you so much, Dr. Hoover, for that wonderful podcast. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to contact Dr. Hoover at hoover at gonzaga.edu. More new episodes of the Forum Podcast are available at our website, forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward slash podcast. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Anchor. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.